Today marks the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. This is where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. But it was also a springboard for the passage of major civil rights legislation and even spurred creation of a couple of new federal agencies. In commemoration of the march, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman sat down last week with four civil rights leaders in government. She joins me now with what she learned here. And Drew, maybe for those of you, I remember the march on Washington, but a little history of what happened there and how it did change things. This was a major civil rights event that occurred in 1963 on August 28th. So today's the 60th anniversary as you said. And this was the gathering of 250,000 people on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. It was a grassroots event organized by advocacy groups, religious groups, civil rights organizations, including the NAACP, among many others. And the overarching goal of the march was to protest racial discrimination, which was, of course, very prevalent across the country at the time, especially against African-Americans. And this came in direct response as well to some violent attacks that occurred against civil rights protesters in Birmingham, Alabama. But generally, it was also to show support for a major piece of civil rights legislation that was at the time pending in Congress. That was the Civil Rights Act, which is a bill intended to end discrimination based on race, religion, national origin, whether that's in schools, public bathrooms, workplace. That was, of course, passed the following year in 1964. So this march had a lot of resonating effects through history in the federal government specifically as well. And as you mentioned, it created several new agencies and federal offices inside some existing agencies too. Yeah, it was an interesting time in history because Martin Luther King Jr. was dealing with Lyndon Johnson because it was only not that many months after the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And so it was a different political calculus. And it was really Johnson that ran with the legislation that Some to this day think Kennedy could have pushed a little harder, but yet it did happen, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And of course, this was prior to Vietnam coming widely on the conscience of the country. That was still a few years off. Let's talk about the work at these agencies, EEOC, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Justice Department got some roles there. How does this all relate back to that march? Well, if you take EEOC, for example, that was an agency that came arguably as a direct result of the March on Washington. It was created in 1965 as the agency to enforce what was called Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, protecting individuals against workplace discrimination. And similarly, in the then Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, the Office of Civil Rights was created as part of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as well, focusing on schools and discrimination in schools. But interestingly, the Justice Department's, their Civil Rights Division came out a couple years earlier. Kristen Clark, who's Assistant Attorney General in the DOJ's Civil Rights Division, said that the march still made a major impact on that division. But frankly, it took the march which spurred Congress to adopt new laws, new robust robust laws with teeth that truly empowered the Civil Rights Division to be able to do the work that it does today. Since January of 2021, we have prosecuted over 105 law enforcement officers who uh, violate people's civil rights, fighting for racial justice and racial equity really lies at the core of our enforcement work in the Civil Rights Division. And Drew, in your discussions with these folks, they gave you some examples of how these civil rights departments are actually still working on the same initial message that came from that march so many years ago. Right. The work, of course, directly ties back to the March on Washington, the Civil Rights Act. 
But that vision has also expanded more. Things like discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or discrimination against individuals with disabilities. These weren't really things that were thought of or at least mentioned during the time of the March in Washington back in the 60s. But now, of course, that's a big focus, for example, at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Interestingly, also just this year, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act took effect, and that's something that EEOC is accepting charges for as well for workplace discrimination. Over at the Department of Education, Catherine Lehman, who's Assistant Secretary in in their Office of Civil Rights, she said discrimination in schools still exists currently, but of course it's in slightly different forms. They're focused on speeding up the process for investigating charges. Even just a couple of weeks ago, she had mentioned that they had an investigation take place within 67 days rather than historically that can sometimes, and even still now, take years to take effect. So those are a couple of things that they're working on right now. Now, the Biden administration's executive orders advancing racial equity, they still tie in here too. What in your conversations did you hear that that's changing expectations now for agencies in the latter day now. The idea here from, interestingly, from that executive order is that it's really expanding the goals of civil rights and racial equity, advancing racial equity to be a responsibility of all agencies, not just the civil rights related agencies, once directly tied to, for example, the Civil Rights Act. That new executive order, there was one in 2021 and then another one issued earlier this year. And it's basically focusing on working within agencies, training, leadership development in racial equity, trying to reduce administrative administrative burdens and federal programs for communities that are typically underserved or historically underserved. Also updating equity action plans. There was an initial requirement in the first executive order, and that's now something that agencies, all agencies are expected to update on an annual basis to kind of reflect how racial equity is is changing over time. Jenny Yang, who's deputy assistant to the president for racial justice and equity in the White House, explained the reason behind those executive orders. That we all must prioritize and focus on equity, racial equity, and all equity in all its forms has made a powerful difference. Because agencies, and I've seen it firsthand from my time at Department of Labor, where I was director of the Office of Contract Compliance, as well as in my role now at the White House. But agencies across the government are doing things differently because the president said it it was, it is, and remains a priority. Agencies that didn't actually think their job was equity now understand that it is. All right. And again, from your discussions at the EEOC the other day, what were some of the takeaways from that commemoration? What are agencies trying to carry forward from the March initial goals? Generally speaking, it's, you know, there's a lot of progress has been made in the 60 years since the march occurred. But of course, work is still to be done. There's always going to be work for these agencies in civil rights. And it's just something, you know, they're trying to be a little bit more proactive, more quick and efficient in trying to handle a lot of these cases that that do occur. But generally, the feeling was the commemoration is sort of a call to action for agencies to look back and remember, but also kind of carry forward that message with them. And Equal Employment Opportunity Commission Chairwoman Charlotte Burroughs took away this message of passing the torch forward. I think they wanted to leave us with the vision that this was a, an ongoing process and an invitation to carry it on. I would also say that jobs were at the crux, at the center of what they were trying to do. Denial of the opportunity to work and work fairly was really at the heart of it, and the jobs part is us at the EOC in part. And so we take heart from that frankly, and I'm just humbled to be doing that. And as you said, the EEOC was a direct consequence of that. And that's EEOC Chairwoman Charlotte Burroughs.
And we've been speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you. Check out her coverage, and there's also a photo gallery from the event that she moderated at the EOC. You can find it all at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And And I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. 
I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right. When I'm standing there and I feel this, and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d- d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that, believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. 
And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.